Hey guys and welcome to a new episode. This is your host Mohammed. Let's get started. What is the rate of thrombolysis infusion for TPA? Typically it's one milligram per hour of TPA for a maximum 24 hours. Some people might even go to 48 hours but nothing longer than that. Again, one milligram per hour of TPA for a maximum typically of 24 hours. Review from two days ago, what is the arcuate sign? This is a small avulsion of the proximal fibula consistent with ACL and PCL disruption either. And second fracture, this is an avulsion of the proximal lateral tibia associated with ACL injury. Again, the arcuate sign is on the proximal fibula. The second sign is in the proximal tibia. The way I think of it is arcuate starts with an A. A is before the S. So arcuate and fibula are both earlier on the alphabet. Second and tibia are both later on the alphabet or second on the alphabet. So arcuate sign is associated with a fibular or proximal fibular avulsion fracture and second sign is a proximal lateral tibial avulsion fracture. Why patients under 30 cannot get a DEXA T-score? That's because the T-score is measured based on the standard age of 30, which is related to the peak bone density. A patient under 30 has not reached their peak bone density, and it will make measurement or reference to that measurement is inaccurate. Instead, we give those patients a Z-score. Calcific tendonitis of the longus collae muscle. This is an inflammatory or granulomatous response which causes the position of calcium hydroxyapatite crystals along the tendons of the longus collae muscles. We can see it on X-ray lateral radiograph of the neck as the positions anterior to the cervical vertebral body or we can see it on CT scan. Again, calcific tendonitis of the longus collae muscle is an inflammatory or granulomatous response which causes the position of calcium hydroxyapatite crystals along the tendinous longus collae muscles. Additional names include longus collae calcific tendonitis and they present with neck pain and stiffness with possibly difficulty swallowing. Patients can have fever or mild leukocytosis. Typically resolves within one to two weeks with uh, basically non-steroidal anti-inflammatory medications or NSAIDs. Hemi-hip arthroplasty. This is a procedure typically done with femoral neck fracture in older patients where we're only replacing the femoral head without replacement of the acetabulum. So only the femoral component is replaced. The acetabulum is normal. On imaging, what you see, you see just a solid piece in, from the femoral, just a rod from the femoral bone into the acetabulum without seeing the acetabular socket that you typically see in total hip arthroplasty. Imaging finding associated with radiation pneumonitis and the timeline. So initially in the acute phase from one month to 12 months after treatment, we see patchy areas of consolidation in the treatment zone. Now this would be linear distribution as you would imagine the radiation x-ray, the radiation beam would be directed through the chest to treat the area of cancer. And so what we see is the patch areas of consolidation are demarcated in the path of the beam. Between two to four months after treatment, we start getting some homogeneous and slightly increased attenuation in the treatment zone. And finally, between three months to 10 years after treatment, we'll get non-uniform areas of consolidation with uh, traction bronchiectasis and fibrosis. To summarize it again, between one month and 12 months, we'll get patchy consolidation. Between two months to four months, we'll get homogeneous areas of increased attenuation and ground glass opacities. And finally, 
between three months to 10 years will get non-uniform areas of consolidation and bronchiectasis and fibrosis in the area of beam distribution. Another question along the same lines of topic we talked about yesterday about renal radio tracers. So the following radio tracers for kidney we have DTPA, MAG3, and DMSA. What are the properties? So DTP, all of them are bonded to technetium to begin with, but DTPA is glomerularly filtrated 100% of the time, and it is good for renal perfusion. It has the same exact extraction fraction as inulin, which is 20%. MAG3 is tubular secretion about 97% of the time, and it has better imaging in than DTPA in patients with renal insufficiency or obstruction. Finally, DMSA, this is a cortical binding agent solely used for pediatric kidneys to distinguish scarring from pyelonephritis or acute pyelonephritis. Imaging are done typically at three hours to allow the blood pool to clear from radio tracer. DMSA again, is the only radio tracer that we can perform SPECT imaging with. Again, DTPA, glomerular filtration, which allow us to calculate GFR and renal perfusion, and has similar extraction fraction as inulin, which is 20%. MAG3 is tubularly secreted, and it has better imaging for sick kidneys. DMSA is a cortical binding agent. Main use is to distinguish between acute polynephritis and scarring, and imaging is typically done at three hours to allow the blood pool to clear. Obviously, because it's a cortical binding agent, then there is a high dose to the kidney, high radiation dose to the kidney because it binds to the kidney. And it is the only radio tracer that can be used for SPECT imaging of the kidney. Cardiac gadolinium enhancement pattern. The key pattern to distinguish is between ischemic, which would be in a vascular distribution, and non-ischemic enhancement. Now, for gadolinium, normally it's uptaken by cardiac muscles and then washes out within five minutes. So normally you would see cardiac MRI enhancement within three to five minutes, but this should not persist. In disease processes, we have retention of gadolinium within the myocyte or the scar tissue, which present with the late gadolinium enhancement. Now, when we're looking at MRI with late gadolinium enhancement, the first split that we need to make in our minds is, is this a vascular distribution or a vascular pattern or not. If we think it's a vascular pattern, what things we look for, that the distribution remains within the vascular territory that we know of. So an LAD or RCA or circumflex territory, typically these are the ones that we're looking for. And if it is in that pattern, then we know it's vascular. The next step is the pattern of enhancement for ischemic disease process. We have two type, subendocardial infarct, which shows late gadolinium enhancement deep within the cardiac myocyte or transmural infarct which shows transmural or enhancement involving the entire vascular territory of the entire wall. Again, the transmural mean the whole wall is involved from the deep to the superficial parts of the wall. This is transmural infarct. If it's subendocardial and this is the first territory that we see subendocardial infarct in, then it's only the myocardium adjacent to the blood within the heart, meaning in the middle of the heart. Next, the non-ischemic enhancement, and we can split those into three categories. One, we said mid-wall, so we said subendocardial is considered vascular. So the next stage is mid-wall mid -wall late gadolinium enhancement, and then epicardial gadolinium enhancement. And finally, subendocardial or endocardial, except it is global, meaning the entire sub 
endocardium is involved. Going back to the top of the non-ischemic cardiomyopathies, if we have mid-wall enhancement, meaning it's not the endocardial and it's not the epicardial, it's just the mid-wall, now we can have different patterns. We can have a continuous segment of mid-wall enhancement or late gadolinium enhancement. We can have patchy areas. Now, the differential for mid-wall enhancement include myocarditis, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, sarcoidosis, and Anderson-Fabry disease and Chagas disease. For epicardial enhancement, differential include sarcoidosis, myocarditis, which we just mentioned in the mid-wall enhancement, and then similar Anderson-Fabry's and Chagas disease. Again, epicardial and mid-wall enhancement, they share the sarcoidosis, myocarditis, and Anderson-Fabry disease. Hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is specific for mid-wall enhancement. Finally, the global endocardial delayed gadolinium enhancement. This is typical of amyloidosis, systemic sclerosis, and post-cardiac transplantation. Again, global endocardial enhancement is consistent with amyloidosis, systemic sclerosis, and post-cardiac transplantation. Let's come down from the top. Ischemic versus non-ischemic. Ischemic would be in a vascular distribution. We have two patterns, subendocardial late gadolinium enhancement and transmural enhancement or transmular infarct consistent with whole wall enhancement. Now, non-ischemic, we have three patterns. It can be either in the mid-wall, epicardial, and global enhancement. The easiest one is global enhancement, and this is global endocardial late gadolinium enhancement, and this is consistent with amyloidosis, systemic sclerosis, and post-cardiac transplantation. If we have epicardial or mid-wall, two things are common, uh, multiple things, four actually, sarcoidosis, myocarditis, Anderson-Fabry's disease, and Chagas disease share the same, both mid-wall and epicardial enhancement. Now, in mid-wall enhancement, we have hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and uh, myocarditis, which we said similar to epicardial enhancement and right ventricular pressure overload. So the difference is if we have mid-wall, we can consider hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, right ventricular pressure overload, and then the common finding with epicardial late gadolinium enhancement, which are sarcoidosis, myocarditis, Anderson-Fabry's disease, and Chagas disease. What is Bertolotti's syndrome? This is known as lumbosacral transitional vertebral anatomy. It's only considered a syndrome or Bertolotti syndrome if the patient is symptomatic. Patient with this anomaly or the transitional vertebral anomaly are typically asymptomatic. It's only a syndrome if they're presenting with symptoms, meaning pain uh, or uh, you know stiffness. The presentation is total or partial unilateral or bilateral fusion of the transverse process of the lowest lumbar vertebral body to the sacrum. We're saying the lowest because because they can have L4 or L5 with transitional anatomy or even L6 with transitional or partial fusion with the sacrum. Again, if it's partial fusion, unilateral or bilateral between the lumbar and the sacrum through a transverse process and the patient is symptomatic, then it is called Bertolotti syndrome. Otherwise, it's just transitional vertebral anatomy. Differences between angular and interstitial ectopic pregnancies. Now, angular pregnancy is considered within the endometrial canal. Obviously, it's close to the site of fallopian tube insertion, but it is still considered endometrial tissue, and pregnancy there can go to become a term pregnancy. An interstitial 
pregnancy is an ectopic pregnancy. Interstitial is the last part of the fallopian tube that goes into the uterus. And at that point, it's considered an ectopic pregnancy. Again, interstitial is an ectopic pregnancy within the fallopian tube. And angular pregnancy, while still an ectopic pregnancy, it is considered within the endometrial canal. It can go to a term pregnancy. And the way I think of angular, and I remember that it is part of the endometrial tissue, is if you look at any picture of the uterine cavity, it looks like an angle, a triangle with three angles. And so angular pregnancy can be at any corners of the angles of the fallopian tube meeting the uterine cavity. Eosinophilic granuloma. This is Langerhans cell histocytosis skeletal manifestation. is called eosinophilic granuloma. And it is due to proliferation of histiocyte, typically seen in children ages 5 to 10 years old. And based on the location within the skeletal system, it has different manifestation. In the skull, it causes lytic lesions with beveled edge. On the mandible, it causes the flute and tooth, so mandible or maxilla, causes the floating tooth appearance. On the spine, it causes vertebral plana. In the lung bones, it is a destructive, destructive lesion with peripheral reaction, can be confused for Ewing sarcoma or osteosarcoma. Again, peripheral histiocyte proliferation or proliferation of histiocyte, commonly seen in children 5 to 10 years old. In the skull, it causes Lytic lesion with beveled edge or a sharp edge on the mandible or maxilla causes the floating tooth appearance. The spine, and I think the spine is the most important one because it's easiest one to show. It causes vertebral plana, which is near complete collapse of the vertebral body. And in the long bone, it is a destructive lesion with peripheral reaction. So you, you'll get to see the laminated layers can mimic Ewing sarcoma or osteosarcoma. Myositis ossificans. So the main differential diagnosis for myositis ossificans is paraosteal osteosarcoma, and this is a bone within the skeletal muscle occurring after trauma. Key differences between myositis ossificans and paraosteal osteosarcoma is if we follow up myositis ossificans, we'll see that the lesion will begin to calcify on the periphery or the rim of the lesion, where per osteal osteosarcoma, we have central calcifications and ossification. The course of myositis ossificans is within the first two weeks, we'll have a soft tissue mass next to long bone. Obviously, the history would be trauma. In three to four weeks, we'll start having an osteoid matrix formation, which can cause periosteal reaction in adjacent bone. And this is where it really looks like an osteosarcoma or particularly a paraosteal osteosarcoma. In five to eight weeks, the rim of the lesion will become to ossify to bone. And that's when we're able to really distinguish it because we said for paraosteal, we have central calcification or ossification. For myositis ossificans, the calcifications will begin on the periphery. Now, after six months, this lesion will begin to decrease in size and involute, and we only do follow-up imaging. We do not biopsy because if we biopsy, well, the histology will show finding concerning for osteosarcoma because th there is proliferation of osteocytes, and that's what causes calcification. But we do not biopsy the lesion because if we get a positive result, then we're forced to take action, and that can lead to amputations. Again, myositis ossificans happens in long bones, 
and soft tissue adjacent to long bones followed by trauma. The course is one to two weeks. We'll have soft tissue mass adjacent to long bone. Three to four weeks, that mass will start to form an ossified matrix, typically on the periphery. By eight weeks, we'll have rim ossification. And by six months, this lesion will begin to decrease in size and involute. And we do not biopsy because pathology will show cells concerning for osteosarcoma. We'll end with this question, syndromes associated with fibrous dysplasia. We have two syndromes. We have McCoon-Albright syndrome and Mazabrad syndrome. McCoon-Albright is polystotic fibrous dysplasia with precocious property and cafe au lait spots. Mazabrad syndrome is fibrous dysplasia with intramuscular myxomas. Again, syndromes associated with fibrous dysplasia, McCoon-Albright syndrome, which is polystotic fibrous dysplasia with precocious property and cafe au lait spots, and Mazabrad syndrome, which is fibrous dysplasia with intramuscular myxomas. Thank you guys. Best of luck.